you finally make your way through that door only to realize that there's one, two, three, an infinite number of doors inside of an infinite number of rooms, none of which make you feel like you finally have gotten there. If you're a person who's heard the word no from a boss, an ex, a team that cut you, a job market that didn't want you, an accident or diagnosis that left you debilitated and depressed, or felt paralyzed by any setback that you just weren't willing to accept, this is the show for you. Because it'll teach you what my dad always taught me, that failure is just opportunity in disguise. This is Matthew Del Negro, and you're listening to 10,000 No's. Welcome back to 10,000 No's. This is Matt Del Negro, your fearless host. Before we get going, I discovered something this week that it is smarter to tell you this in the beginning of the episode instead of the end, since some people don't listen through the end credits. If you like this show, if you dig what you're about to hear, if you've been digging this podcast in general, please rate, review, share, subscribe, all that stuff. Put it on social media. Plaster it on your walls at home. I don't know. Just get the word out about 10,000 No's. We're really happy with what we're doing here. We have great guests like today's guest, Dan Bukatinsky. Um, we're really happy about the new edition. We brought back Monday Morsels uh, a couple of weeks ago, sent out a newsletter. We're kind of using this downtime to get restructure here. And the response to the newsletter was ridiculous. And I'm so psyched about it because I always feel like I'm bugging people when I put something in their inbox and people really had great, great responses. Apologies for last week, the first week we did this new format and uh, there was a broken link to the book, uh, The War of Art. Uh, apologies about that, but we are getting it up and running and everything is going. And um, really excited about today. Dan Bukatinsky is an award-winning actor as well as a writer, producer, best-selling author. You're going to hear all about how we've known each other for a long time. Uh, great, great conversation today. As an actor, uh, Dan can now be seen in ABC's The Baker and the Beauty, which just premiered last week, April 13th. He is also best known for his Emmy-winning role as James Novak on the hit Shonda Rhimes series Scandal. You'll hear about that. I kind of came in and I'm going to say it in quotes, took over his position there. Uh, you'll hear if you don't know that. Uh, in addition, he most recently starred opposite Jennifer Lopez in uh, Second Act. He appeared in Steven Spielberg's The Post, starring Meryl Streep and Tom Hanks. Other film roles include Under the Tuscan Sun, The Opposites of Sex. I can't even go in. He was a regular on the Fox reboot 24 Legacy, NBC's comedy Marry Me. He's guests appeared on pretty much every show in television. Um, what I'm really excited about, as a writer, in addition to writing over a dozen pilots, Dan was a consulting producer on Grey's Anatomy for two seasons. I knew the guy, had no idea about this until I was sitting down with him. Co-executive producer on NBC's dramedy Lipstick Jungle. In 2003, he and his producing partner, Lisa Kudrow, founded Is or Isn't Entertainment, which produced the Emmy-nominated cult comedy The Comeback for HBO, both in 2005, then again in 2014 when it came back. They produced Fox Television's 25 Words or Less. Uh, they also, along with writer-director Don Roos, they created the Emmy Award, no, not winning, but nominated web-to-television comedy, Web 
therapy, which we talk about. Really cool story how that came about, how they got that done. They are also longtime producers of the Emmy-winning docuseries, Who Do You Think You Are?, which will soon return to NBC. And his most avid fans remember Dan as the writer, producer, and star of the hit indie romantic comedy, All Over the Guy, which was released by Lionsgate Films way back in 2001. If that's not enough, Dan is the author of the best-selling book, Does This Baby Make Me Look Straight?, Here's the thing. This guy hustled and made it happen. I talked all about this on the Monday Morsels episode, the little mini episode this past Monday. Uh, You know that I love that concept, but Dan embodies it. His career is a result of it. And sitting down with him, getting to talk with him, even though it was over Zoom, was really invigorating to me. I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. Here he is. Dan Bukatinsky. I originally met you not in a uh, kind of equal relationship. I was auditioning for you. I think Rosemary DeWitt, who's an old friend of mine, was in a, a, she got cast in a pilot you wrote. I think it was called The Commuters, maybe. That's exactly right. She said you should go in for this. She kind of got me in and I went in and I don't think I've ever even told you this, but it was, it was in that place. I think it's 5225 Wilshire Boulevard on La Brea and Wilshire. And they have these tiny rooms and I auditioned for you and I, they were looking for it was like to play her husband, I think. And I came out and I called. I said, yeah, I think it went well. And and she eventually told me, you were like, yeah, he's your Del Negro friend. He's really good. He's really tall because we had, it was such a tiny room. It was like, I was on top of you. Like you're looking up my nose basically. And I just, I always remember that. And I really don't think I've ever even told you that. And then we worked together in Scandal and all that. You know. I know, but I remember meeting you and I remember exactly how we met. So I did remember that. I knew that, that um, Rosemary, who I, for whatever reason, I call her Audrey. Ever since I've met her, I've called her Audrey. So she's in my Rolodex as Audrey. Not Rolodex. She's in my context as Audrey. But I met her. I met you through her, um, and I oddly feel like you know I'm friends with um, Jen Todd and Chris Messina, and I, I oddly feel like there's a connection there as well. Maybe. Oh yeah, Chris or, is like my best friend. I mean, yeah. And yes, then Jen, I've had I, Jen on this show and everything. Yeah. I assume so. So I think Rosemary was was the way in, and I don't remember being in a in an in any office on Wilshire. I, it must have been the casting office. It was a casting. It was no. That's what it was. It was like a casting. It was like a pilot season, like last yeah. minute go in. Like you guys were shooting it in two days. You couldn't find this guy. Something like that. And oh it, it was God. one of those pilot season frenzy things. And yes. she was already cast, well, so she was like, it, oh, you know. her sto- I mean, casting her in that was the craziest thing ever because it was like she was a discovery. She was. She. It was as if she'd never done anything before. Because in L.A. in Hollywood, of course, you can come from New York with a really you know, nice, um, uh, extensive theater background and training and experience. And you show up in Hollywood and no one's met you before. So they feel like they've discovered you. But we, I always joke with, with, uh, uh with Rosemary. That was like, you know, I discovered you. She's like, yeah, yeah, I know. But no, we, we were looking for her husband and I remember meeting you then and you're such a, such a good actor and such a great guy. And so many of my, throughout my From then, that was 2005. So 2005 through now, which is 15 years, so many of the connective tissues that I have found of people who I love and admire somehow or other connect to you. 
Oh, that's really nice to hear. I'm I'm looking so, at you and Don, and I'm going Don, who's if anybody doesn't know Dan's husband. Who like I'm looking at you guys, and I feel like you know everybody in this town. And now, what's interesting is seeing some of the stuff you know leading up to to talking with you, the shows that you produce, and 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 we'll I'll kind of I'm I'm all jammed up because there are so many things I kind of want to get to, but. Uh, some of those shows I had not seen and I've now seen just clips and I'm like, oh my God, that's why that show, like, like, who do you think you are? That's why that show is, what is it? 11th year? It, it is. We, you know what we, it was, let's see, what, 2000 2010, I think was our first year. So 10 years, 10 years, 10 years, eight seasons. It's, it's a little weird the way the seasons got broken down, but we were at NBC for the first three seasons and got nominated for an Emmy and then got canceled. Um, the Emmys are my curse of uh, my kiss of death. We're going to get into you, that. Just, uh, kiss of death. So we got nominated for our first Emmy and we got canceled at NBC. And we then moved to, to we were lucky enough. I'm not bitter. Uh, we were lucky enough to move to TLC where we then did fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh, like six seasons, short seasons, um, but kept the show going for, I don't know, we've done like 75 episodes now, but it's, and now we're going, oh, so the, I'm bearing the lead. So now in an unprecedented move that is just like a dream come true for us, we are returning to NBC this year. Wow. Congratulations. It's amazing. It just doesn't get to happen like that, especially with a show that is like, it's like your prize little passion. You know, the show is so good and so meaningful and so educational and has so much positive, like, it's just good programming. I mean, these you know, the celebrities are really just the tour guides to, to learn about history through an ancestor of theirs. And we've done so many episodes and had so many great, great people on. And we're now in the middle of launching our, we're not launching yet. It hasn't, we haven't set an air date yet, but we're, we were in the middle of shooting um, this new season for NBC when we had to shut down because of the coronavirus. But, uh, but it's an extremely rewarding show to be a part of. Yeah, I mean, I'm embarrassed as I watched. I, I watched a clip with uh, Laverne Cox, and I'm embarrassed as I watch it because I'm like, this is so good. And yet, there are so many things I haven't seen. <laughs> it's it's the other one was your, your 25 words or less, which is the other sh- the, the game show that you produced or, or pitched. And I'm I guess I apologize to anybody listening because it's going to be a little schizophrenic because I'm so excited, but. <laughs> but we're, so we're going to go all over the place, but let, because we're on that, let's, let's kind of talk about like, where did that come from? Where did the, you know, the, the, who do you think you are? Where did that come from? Had you been pitching a bunch of shows? Were you on that side of things? I know you were writing, but you kind yeah. of do everything. I'm, I'm astounded. So let me, let me get well, that one. Well, Lisa Kudrow and I became, you know, I, 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 without giving too much backstory um, and you'll, Cut, you'll, you'll edit all, all the Probably stuff. Probably not. That, that I, is I, so boring. No, it's not boring. Everybody thinks it's boring except for the people listening. I made a small little movie in 2000. Well, my husband made a movie called The Opposite of Sex, which is great. It's, great uh, it's just one of the, it's the first movie he directed, but uh, he's a prolific screenwriter. But he 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 cast Lisa Kudrow in, in that. And I met Lisa on set of my husband's movie and we discovered we had gone to college at the same place and it overlapped for a couple of years. And so it didn't take long before as two couples, we became uh, friends. Um, and a couple of years later, a year later, I was making a tiny, 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 a little independent movie that I wrote and was also the star of. And Lisa did a cameo in that. And then I started writing pilots. 
uh, one of which was Commuters. I think that was the first hour-long pilot I ever wrote. And in that time, Lisa wanted to start a development company, and she wanted to start it with me because she thought two writer, creative actors as partners would be so much more interesting than if either one of us were a development executive. Right. Yeah, this is post-Friends, uh, where she's still on Friends? This or is... This is, this is during the last two years of Friends. Okay, okay. So at that time, Warner Brothers, you know, which basically owned Lisa's services on Friends, at th those are the years that they called them vanity deals. You know, they would just give an actress an office and an assistant and you could start a company. They didn't have much faith in them. And our representatives didn't necessarily think this was a good idea either. But we were friends and we trusted each other and we liked each other's sensibilities. So we started the company, Is or Isn't Entertainment. Um, and we st that was 17 years ago. And, you know, we, the first season, we made a bunch of pilots. We were like in this mill of just meeting writers and trying to develop pilots and would shoot them. And we weren't really, we hadn't yet discovered that in a company like that, you really just need to be driven by your passion, by what you love. There's no point in doing something just to try to hit a number. And so about, uh, let's see, 2005, maybe three years into it, we, and we made a couple of things. And three years into it, Lisa went to go do a movie in Ireland and she was binging the British, the UK version of Who Do You Think You Are, which is a, an extremely successful format created in the UK and has been on for 15 seasons at least in the UK. And Lisa was like, I saw this show. You guys have to see it. I didn't even know who any of these prominent celebrities were in the UK, but I watched every story. It's riveting. And so... Our agents sent us a bunch of episodes on, on DVD when people still uh, back in the days of DVDs. <laughs> and we, I found, we got on the phone with the creator of it. We were such a fan of his because he had also created shows like Colonial House on PBS and Frontier House. I mean, he had been behind so many amazing shows that we loved for so long. So we get into this conversation and he had been saying that for years he'd been trying to sell that format to the US and maybe if we partnered, we'd be able to do it. Long story short, we did do that. We did partner and we did sell it to NBC and it took a while before we could figure out how to make this BBC show that was documentary pace, no commercials, 59 minutes. How do we do that for an NBC audience with five act breaks and commercials? And will we be able to get an American audience to sit, to watch history? We were, it was very nerve wracking. And you know what? The show resonated and um, it has been on ever since. And we, we love doing it. And I'll never, and I fell in love with history as a result of it. I've learned a ton about history because of it. Um, and uh, so that is how that happened. It was an existing format that we fell in love with and sort of chased. And where was that chronologically compared to like the comeback? What Alex Graham. Oh, Al Alex, Graham. Alex Graham. I'm sorry. I have to, I have to say <laughs> Alex Graham. Alex Graham is an amazing producer who also produced the, the Oscar winning documentary Man on Wire about the guy who oh, walked the tightrope. Yeah. Um, but just a brilliant uh, creator of content in the UK. And he created uh, Who Do You Think You Are? Sorry. No, that's okay. So I'm just wondering chronologically with the comeback, which you and Lisa did for HBO, which Correct. also has another, I mean, that's, that's crazy. You have two, two shows that have kind of come back 
One of them yes. being the comeback. But, but tell us well, about that. And where was the that? The comeback co- was first. The comeback was first. No, the comeback okay. was first. Okay. Yeah. So while Friends was still going on, we were in this sort of pilot making game where I was making Commuters, which is where I met you. And I made another pilot called Beck and Call. And we made this other pilot with Janine Garofalo and another one with Aisha Tyler. We were just like at Warner Brothers servicing our deal, making pilots. And Lisa was still doing Friends. And we would often have meetings and conference calls from her dressing room. But the minute Friends was over, uh, Lisa had the notion of a character that she had done in the Groundlings. And she took a meeting with Michael Patrick King and together, and again, this is 2004. I mean, this is before any housewives reality TV was just like big brother survivor, amazing race. And this really interesting show on E that followed Anna Nicole Smith around. I don't know if you remember yes, that. Yes. I, well, at least th- this show grew out of this weird, like, what if the actress that we were following around, like that E show with Anna Nicole Smith, was following around this character that you used to do in, this, in the Groundlings, which she used to call talk show character. And um, slowly but surely, Lisa and Michael put that what if together and it became the comeback. And HBO, Sex in the City was just off the air and they had enough faith in Lisa and Michael. They did not understand what the show was. It was such a hard show to pitch because you were like, what? It's like the raw footage of a reality show camera. Like it just didn't make any sense to them, but they gave us the they had that leap of faith where they let us shoot the pilot and then they make, they let us make 13 episodes. And, you know, it was devastating when the show did not, uh, it got nominated for Emmys and did not get picked up for another season. And it was only that one season in the beginning. One season, one season. And sadly. Oh, sorry. Oh no, go on. on. Sadly, it, it, it aired around 2005 and sadly that year on HBO, I mean, listen, even HBO used to say this, that that was the year that HBO did not behave like HBO. HBO has a a history of not necessarily caring as much about ratings and numbers and just sort of gets behind projects and gives them time to find their audience. But unfortunately, there were two or three, if not four, show business inside baseball type projects on HBO all at the same time. One that was sort of improvised that George Clooney's company was doing, one that was extras that uh, Ricky Gervais starred in, one was the comeback, and there might have even been a fourth. And I think that they were scrutinizing the numbers because they had a lot of content that was about the making of television. Right. And Entourage might have even, I don't know if that was on back then, but. Right. So it was a lot of showbiz, inside showbiz shows at HBO at the time. And so we did not get picked up. It was a very, very tough year. 2005 will go down in history. It was the year that my daughter was born. It was the year that my father was diagnosed with cancer. It was the year that I turned 40. It was the year that I, I mean, so many things converged that had to do with life and the business interwoven. And I will never forget that year because it was also the year we made the comeback, which was this unbelievable high. And then the year that we didn't get the pickup and, um, how do you process something like that? Because that's so interesting. Even those shows you just mentioned, unscripted extras, the comeback, 
they were all really good. So it's just like the luck of the draw that it happened to be that way. But how do you, you know, with your father, with, with all of that, just as a human, not even just as an artist or a professional, but as a human, how do you, because this is 10,000 knows, how, how did you take that and, you know, did it, did it crush you for a while? Did you come back immediately? What happened after that? Well, it was very hard. It was a it was a really tough blow, and I and I'm, I'll speak a little bit for my partner because Lisa put her heart and soul and every drop the unbelievable talent that is Lisa as a writer, as a producer, and as an actress all converged with the comeback. She was you know in hair and makeup in the writers' rooms every day, and then would go off to shoot and then come back, and you know she was as she was as inside that show as you could possibly be. And so much of Michael Patrick King's life and history in this business and Lisa's was melded for that show. So um, we, we cared about it deeply and we're, we're so proud of the end result that not getting a pickup felt like it was, it took a long time to get over that. Uh, I mean, we all moved on. Yes, but it took that one smarted. I mean, listen, we took us nine years to come back and do a second season, um, that, which is a different story. Which is but, an incredible uh, story in, in and of itself, it, that it did come back because that never happens. You know? And it took a long time, I think, for audiences to continue to watch that one season and make it sort of a cult favorite. Like people kept going back to the comeback and watching it and finding it and watching the whole season. And then you know, the, I remember the DVD box for the comeback. It, it had the words, the first season, the complete first season. And then the graphic on it, which was on purpose, had an X over the word first. And it said the only, you know, the complete only season of the comeback. Um, but it, it took a really long time. And sadly, those years, 2005, 2006, 2007, for me, coincided with the birth of my daughter and the subsequent birth of my son and the making of this pilot that I put my heart and soul into and loved with all my heart called Commuters, which starred our mutual friend, Rosemary Duet, and that did not get picked up when it was sort of primed to, yeah. which was a heartbreak in 2005 as well. And the diagnosis of my father with a, with a terminal brain tumor, which took his life in 2007, which was also the year that my son was born. So I was getting a life lesson in the circle of life, both in the business and in my personal life in a very constant rhythmic way. And it was, and I had just turned 40 and it was like, I had to grapple and try to <laughs> process uh, a lot uh, during that time, uh, both per personally and professionally. And uh, I don't, I actually don't know how, I, I just keeping, putting one foot in front of the other was really the only way to get through both the heartaches and also the joys of it all. But it was a particularly trying time, those two years. Yeah, I can only imagine. I mean, your dad alone, I mean, any any of those things, particularly your dad, but then also the professional stuff. It's like, it, it's a real, it's a real hit. And then you have a husband who's in the business as well. And I don't know how those years were for him. Hopefully maybe he had some some ups while you were having the downs. Yeah. I don't know. Uh, that's, that's, 
you know, something I'm curious about in and of itself is just having two of you in this crazy, volatile business. You've both been extremely successful, but, uh, you know, how do you negotiate that? Like, it, it, how, how does that kind of work in terms of like a well, strategy of, of raising kids and all of that? Interestingly enough, I actually had never thought about this before, but right around 2006, seven, or maybe I can't remember the year that, cause I know we launched in 2008, but maybe it was around 2008. Lisa, Don, my husband and I uh, collaborated on this just little experiment called the web therapy. We had continuously been getting these emails from our agents that, do you guys want to do any web series? And at the time, web series were just, it was just like a non-starter. They were like old pilots that people would want to cut up, like shoot and cut up into little eight minute or five minute bites. And Lisa kept saying, it doesn't make any sense. If you're going to do something on the web, it should be like organic to the web. Like, wouldn't it be so stupid if people during their lunch break would just do three minutes of therapy online? <laughs> and it just made us laugh. And right around that time, talk about, you know, opportunity and circumstance and just willingness to say yes on, at the right time. Somebody asked, uh, Lexus was starting an online platform and they approached Lisa because they liked Lisa's vibe and her taste and uh, Lexus, the wanted, car, the car company, Lexus, the car company okay. hired outside content providers to find talent, writers, producers, actors who might want to do some web content, short form content at a time when nobody was doing that. I mean, this is 12 years ago, um, 13 years ago. I was, I'll tell you that in a second. Go on. You are. Yeah. No, and, and by the way, people were but making it was, web Yeah, shows. it was weird and people don't understand it right. now. Like when we did it, I we did something that was very cool, but it just, people were like, what? You know, it was Richard yeah. Schiff was in it and and, and Robin yeah. Weigert and, and, it's, and it was still like, what's a web series, you know? Anyway, go on. Well, we can put a pin in that because the truth is it's like it's like the old student film thing. When you're an actor and you have no control over the variables of your employment, you got to work. You got to work. Shoot something on your phone. Shoot something on a go do a student film. Go do a short film like people. We, I would always say this to young people and I always took that uh, that. So, of course, people were making web series. And at, at the time, you would say, like, I'm doing this web series. And people were like, "That who's ever going to see that, right? But we were making, people were making them. Um, and Lisa just w was fixated on this idea that, like, if it's going to be on the web, it shouldn't just be content that was designed for TV that's put on the web. It should be content that is designed for the web. And her idea was the only idea she had. And Lexus called, not Lexus, the people that were creating content for Lexus. And Lisa said, well, the only idea I have is about playing this online therapist. And they loved the idea. And they gave us total creative control, which never no. happens. Yeah. And so Don and me and Lisa were like, oh my God, they're like giving us a chunk of money, which wasn't that much, but it was enough to make a bunch of webisodes. Yeah. And we just mom and popped it. We did it from our offices in West Hollywood and we shot them in those offices and uh, with no permits. And we painted one of our 
what we called our conference room. We painted it for Jane Lynch's office and we painted Lisa's office for Stephen Weber's office. And we asked our friends to be in it with us and we just experimented. And slowly but surely, we made a bunch of those webisodes and slowly but surely, we had the opportunity of, of cutting them together into half hours, which we licensed to Showtime. And four seasons of, of web, of four seasons of half hours on Showtime, which did not get seen by a lot of people, but we managed to make 43 episodes that starred Meryl Streep and Steve Carell and Conan O'Brien and Julia Louis-Dreyfus and you name it. We have some of the most amazing improvised comedic talent uh, and people who never did improv before who are just brilliant. So I am now obsessed with getting web therapy onto a platform somewhere where people can see it because now oh my it's God. the perfect time. Yeah, now is the perfect, the time, perfect time. Really the perfect time. I mean, actually, even just like COVID, what's happening right now, I don't know. Actually, we do know this is going to oh, air yeah. very soon. So still um, what's happening right now, it's just like when you said the web therapy and I'm like, well, that sounds like perfect for right now. Then there it's, is web therapy going on. Doing. Yeah. So um, yeah. It, what's, what's really um, so exciting for me to hear about that is, you know, there are listeners that are there's a whole wide range like spectrum of listeners, but there are a lot that are young that are, you know, up and coming in our business. And I love for them to hear that because people think, you know, Oh, Hollywood, it's this, they have this image of it. It's like, no, it's just these people in these rooms, like painting the wall. Like it's so guerrilla filmmaking. And yes, it ended up on Showtime. Yes. It had Lisa Kudrow who, you know, I get it. It's not just like some random person and that, helps it but it's it's kind of no matter where you are it's the same thing like i'm just thinking so he, you know here she was making you know boatloads of money but it's not about the money that's like that's incidental it's about the work and the excitement is in the work well, and and that's that, not going to change no matter what you do no matter what level that's the that's the thing keeping it alive Right. And Don and I, you know, Don was, is a very prominent and had a very, very long prominent feature film career where he would work for the studios and write a lot of movies. And the notion at this stage of our lives, and, and now that I'm thinking about it, it really was at the tail end of, of, of the heartache of the comeback and a lot of personal stuff. And the idea that we could have total creative control was such an appealing thing to work with our friends on weekends only, shoot it ourselves, own it, that was huge. Own it 100%. So we were even, even in the deal we made with Showtime, we were licensing it to them, but they did not own it. So we would own our content forever. Now, as Lisa points out, you can own lots of things. You can buy something at a you could buy something at a garage sale, and it's worth the same fifty cents that you paid for right. it, and you own it. And it doesn't mean anything. So as long, you know, the key to owning something is that it's valuable, and the value, of course, is relative. But the point is, you're right. It was a time where we were just acting out of the need to have a little bit of creative control at a time where it felt like so much of our fate. And this is true of our business, and it will always be true no matter what level you're at. So it's always about the controllable variables as opposed to uncontrollable variables. There are some things that just we have no control over. And selling an idea is something you just can't control. It either will or it won't. It's one reason we called our company Is or Isn't Entertainment. Because things that we are trying to cook up 
either will or won't resonate, sell, get viewers, get another season, make it. I mean, listen, I could talk about web therapy and the comeback and who do you think you are in 25 words or less because those are the things that we shot many episodes of and were successes. I could tell you dozens, I won't, dozens and dozens and dozens over 17 years of projects that we tried to get going that didn't happen. It was crushing the number of things we tried on the scripted side, unscripted side, all kinds of things. Not to mention we as actors, I separate from Lisa and Lisa separate from me. You know, we've had our, people have said no way more than people have said yes. Yeah. And I personally, as an actor, like, you know, I, I had, I started to have the career that I dreamed of, which when I first moved to Los Angeles, when I was 27, 26 in my forties. So 20 years of pivoting towards other things that I'm not complaining at all. I loved writing and I loved getting the opportunities I had and becoming a producer and becoming a writer, but that wasn't my plan. My plan was to come to Hollywood and become, be an actor Yeah, and do a gap ad. Do you, do you remember, you just said you finally had the acting career that you kind of had dreamed of. Um, and I'm sure that wasn't even quite exactly what you dreamed. I mean, I'm thinking for myself, no, like it's much better now than not. it's ever no. been, but it's not exactly what I dreamed of necessarily. But what Correct. do you remember Correct. a point? Do you remember a specific point when you were like, oh, it's re- it's kind of working now. Was there that point where you go, was it scandal? Was it something else? What 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 was it when you finally said like, oh, yeah, I, I'm doing it. I'm kind of doing it. Um, that's a really good question. I'd say there's one, I mean, look, I made a movie that I starred in because I wrote it. It's the only way I would have gotten that part because I cast myself and it got, and it got a release, which is a miracle. Like in 2000, I sold it to Lionsgate. It came out in movie theaters. I was very lucky that this tiny little gay movie, it's a romantic comedy, uh, got seen in most throughout the country. Um, and around that time, I felt like, oh, I, you know, like we as actors are always, everybody grapples with this idea that you're really a fraud. Like you think you're an actor, but you're not really, you just want to be an actor. It doesn't mean you are one. And it's so terrible because you're in a business where the only thing that proves that you are what you are is employment where, you know, or commerce, somebody paying you for your work. Right. right? Um, I had worked in the theater when I was in my 20s, so I knew that I could do it, but that wasn't sustainable in any way. And I would occasionally work in TV for a decade, uh, guesting on a show here and there. And those were my little little starts in my 20s and early 30s. Making this movie and when it came out and getting a little bit of notoriety for it, a little bit, was like the first time I thought, oh, okay, I could do this. But guess what? My expectations for what would happen after that movie came out were so out of touch with what A, was realistic for a tiny little movie and B, um, was not what happened. <laughs> um, <laughs> It's just not what happened. I, I had written the movie as uh, as well. And so I got a lot more attention from my writing than I did for my acting. And so yet again, I was in this crazy position where I was writing pilots every year, trying to put myself in them. And every time I would turn in the final draft of each of those scripts, they would say, 
let's wait for that character to come in in a later episode. I'd always have to cut myself out of these stupid shows. So I was, so I, I started to go back down to this path of like, oh, I'm not really an actor. Like I never, I'm never really going to make this. This is not happening for me. And I would keep going and keep going and keep going and keep going. So I have to say that Scandal and then the success of that show, which I could see viscerally between season one and season two, there was a particular trip to New York City in the fall of 2012, where everybody on the streets clearly was watching the show. It was it was unbelievable. Like I, I had never experienced anything like that before where suddenly I'm walking in New York. I, I grew up in New York. So it was just normal for me and people knew who I was and I did, could not wrap my brain around how fast that happened. So that was about being on a successful show and it made me feel like, Oh, I'm in this. I'm in this. I can, I can do this. And of course that show then I went on to do a lot more of those episodes and it led down a path that changed my life, completely yeah, changed my just, life. Yeah, I mean, you won an Emmy for, I mean, like that, like, does that ever happen? I feel like on, to me, it seems like unless you're this huge name actor, you're not winning guest Emmys. You're just, no, I know. it's just like, you know what I mean? It's, it's, I didn't think, yes. It's like I Robin did not, Williams but, won, I think, guest Emmy. It, it's so it's really incredible. It Did you it, see that coming? Did you? No, what? no, 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 not even remotely. Like it was like winning a lotto. It was li- literally like a scratcher card. I mean, the only thing I'll, to that analogy, had I bought a lottery ticket? Yes. So I was on a show and I submitted for that category or the, or the show submitted for me. And there had been a lot of attention around a particular episode of that season that was written, um, you know, it was an unbelievably written five-page scene. It felt like a play in the middle of this episode between Jeff Perry and myself. And it, it got a lot of chatter. Yeah. Also because we took our clothes off on it. That, that, that was a big part of it. Yeah. But the whole season started to get a lot of attention because we were a married couple and we were both men and I wanted to adopt a baby. We did adopt a baby and suddenly he didn't, it was crazy and explosive and felt like a play in the middle of this, of a season. Um, and I got to work with Jeff, who was a, you know, a, a dear friend of mine for as you know, yeah. like to work with him, we both, we both played, we will go down that path. Yeah. We both played the lovers of, of, of Cyrus Bean. Um, but, uh, <laughs> yeah, people, uh, actually able- people hated me because they loved you so much. So when I came on the scene later after you, you know, spoiler alert to anybody who's not seen uh scandal, scandal. But you, you know, you end up dead. dead. And, uh, and when I came in, it was, it was not, uh, a real welcoming to my character because they loved you. I mean, they, you know, it, and and then they eventually kind of came around a little bit, but never to the point of, you know, the, you guys were, you know, you in particular were what, what the audience wanted for Cyrus, you know? Yes. And listen, it was written that way. I mean, I was written as this, as this younger than him, um, aspiring parent, who, who is not going to love the guy that's trying to make a father out of Cyrus Bean? Who's not going to love the guy who's, who's holding that beautiful little baby and that's the happiest day of his life? Like I 
And this is fascinating. I mean, the way that character resonated for many people, women in particular, and black women in particular, is amazing. It's like it, James represented something for people across all genders and races. And it was very interesting to watch and very interesting, you know, to this day, it is something that resonates with people who stop me in the street and uh, want to talk about it. James was a beloved character, but, but I did not see the, the Emmy thing, you know, it was like a pipe dream. In fact, I called it with, I had publicist that year and I, because I also had a book that I had just published. I want to get to that as well. Yeah. I, I hired these publicists to help me promote the book, but then scandal was happening uh, within a year of my book coming out, I mean, the timing was awful because if I had released the book even a year later, it would have been so much better. But I kind of, I kind of went on a, a, a media tour for my book a second time after Scandal because then I sort of yeah. had another platform. I mean, it was a book about adopting my kids right, and I'm playing a character yeah. on Scandal who adopted a baby. So, um, uh, wait a minute. Oh yeah. Yeah. So I hired these publicists and I said to them, I was like, you can't go on a campaign for an Emmy as a guest star. So let's not do that, but let's call it the pipe dream project, the P D P. And we would refer to things that I could do just along the lines of letting people in the industry know that I, you know, uh, to to throw my hat in the ring. Such as like, what would be an example of that? Going to academy events, you know, like there were things that you can do when you're on a show. And if you're in the Emmy, if you listen, there's so many people, so there are so many great actors and there there's at least, you know, there are hundreds of actors in every category, some more than others, but every year it grows exponentially. So you're up against hundreds and hundreds of people. I'm not tooting my horn. I'm just saying like, it's so out of the realm. It's like, it's like a lottery ticket. Yeah. But I said, look, I'm not, I can't go on a campaign, but are there things that I can do? And so little pieces of press around Emmy voting time that talked about that episode, that talked about my relationship with Jeff Perry, that talked about my book. And then there were events that I could go to at the Academy where I could also be seen and mingle at, you know, supporting other shows as well. Um, but just be a presence at the Academy were things that I could do that just allowed me to be more involved and learn more about what the Academy even met. And I don't think it hurt. Um, I really, there's lots of, again, it was just like the perfect storm. I think if I had been nominated a year later or a year earlier, I never would have won the nomination bowled me over. I have to say, like, I never, in a, I didn't even wake up that morning to check. Right. I didn't think it could happen. I just didn't think it could happen. Once you're nominated, you can't not think it could happen that you could win because now suddenly the pool. Yeah. You've got a 20% chance down. of winning or whatever it is. Yeah. You've got, yeah, it was a, a big category, but so I didn't think I would win, but I certainly, once I was nominated, I knew I had more of a chance. Um, and then, of course, winning was another moment I'll never forget as long as I live, standing on that stage where I felt like, oh, my God, I absolutely am an actor. I, I, I mean, it's so lame to think that you need that kind of external. It's, I, I'm embarrassed to admit, okay, that there are so many experiences we have as actors on set or in a scene with someone where you're like, oh, my God, I'm, I'm, I'm in this. Like, you know when you're in it. 
that, and you know that I knew I was an actor, but there was something about the validation of that moment, which again, again, like winning the lottery, few people get to experience and I'm completely grateful and mindful of that. But there was something that happened on that stage because I was now in my forties and I had only dreamed of ever being an actor in, you know, since childhood that I felt like, Oh my goodness, this is, this moment right now will be frozen in time as a particular kind of validation for what it is that I, so many people did not support yeah. <laughs> or encourage for many, 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 many years. Well, I, oh, I, I just say, I appreciate you saying, you know, saying that because it's easy for someone young to look and go, well, what's he talking about? He's got like, he has no uncertainty. It's like, no, no, no. You got years and years of uncertainty and years of doubt because the external factors are telling us forever that we're not enough. And, and even when we're getting success, it's like, there's so much between those little blips on the radar. Totally. I had a complete, listen, I was always aspiring. I was always aspiring. I spent a decade, even when I had a decent agent and I had made a movie and I was testing for pilots. I never got a pilot except as a guest star. I could never get a pilot. Listen, there's stories of actors who don't ever get on shows that then get picked up that have done dozens of pilots. They're like, I keep doing pilots and I never get picked up. Everyone's got a story, but I could not for the life of me get a pilot. I'm not, I think to this day, I don't think I ever read for a pilot, tested for a pilot and then booked the pilot what about the I new one that show. we're going to talk about? Because and, and, and I want to get to that because because that's my deal too. I did it. You know what? And people don't believe this. And, and it's so funny. I didn't know that about you, but we we share that. I did it once. A USA pilot that was a really highly touted. Resp- Actually, it was with Georgina Riley, who you know oh, from your show yes. that you're doing we, now. I'm, and, I'm Baker and the Beauty. Baker and the Beauty. And, and she was one of the lead. We did it. I remember the table read and I thought- this thing, I don't, there's no big names, but it's perfectly cast. It's a great period piece script. This is going to go. It was the only time that I did. Everything else was like, I always say, cobbled together in some way. Scandal was like, I didn't know what that was going to be. And that, that's actually my question, because I, I want to get to some of the other stuff, and I don't want to keep you forever, although I kind of do, um, <laughs> if you want to. But But my question on Scandal was, was it similar to my experience, which was it came in and I, at, at the time I actually had not, was not watching the show. So I didn't realize what a huge hit it was, but I only knew it was going to be a minimum of two episodes. It was not necessarily going to go further. Was yours kind of like that? Or did you know when you signed on, you had an arc to do? No, I am. Um, well, to be honest with you, I had met Shonda Rhimes uh, in circumstances that were different. Like I had gotten offered a part on Grey's Anatomy because a Curb Your Enthusiasm scene got sent to Shonda. I couldn't go to an audition or Sean, I, I don't remember. I was going to be out of town to audition for a, a guest spot on Grey's Anatomy. And so Shonda was sent a clip of the scene that gets a lot of attention on YouTube. It's just this one scene that I did on Curb Your Enthusiasm, which got me that part on Grey's Anatomy. Then my book came out and there was a connection between me and Shonda because we had both adopted our children and 
we had some friends in common and Linda Lowy is the casting director of all those shows and the wife of Jeff Perry. And so Shonda kind of knew who I was at that point. I was asked to audition to play Huck on Scandal. Really? for For the pilot. And I read this monologue and I learned it so fast. Like it was a beautiful piece of writing. Yeah. You know that you can learn, you know how you learn things faster when they're really well yep. written. And hers had and such, so, a, such a tempo, such a meter to it, such a poetry to it. So it was, yeah, you would read it and you'd be like, oh, I'm going to be able to learn this because it just flows. And I knew I was not that part. I knew like they're never going to give me this part, but I loved the writing of it. And I went in to read for Betsy and for Shonda and for Linda. And I told them, I said, look, I learned this so fast. It's so well-written. I knew I wasn't going to get to play that part. And then I had heard, of course, that I was not going to get to play Huck. And they had me back to read for Rosen. Yeah, for Josh Molina's yeah, part. Yeah. And I did not get that part. And I heard through the grapevine that Shonda was going to, had wanted me to play a journalist on the show and she had something in mind. So then two or three episodes in, I got a text from Linda Lowy saying, do you want to play my husband's husband? And I couldn't quite understand what she was talking about. And they basically offered me this part that was only going to be two or three episodes in the first season. That was it. And so I did two or three episodes in the first season. And um, and in between season one and season two, I interviewed with Shonda and Betsy with my two very, very good friends who were running Grey's Anatomy at the time to be a consulting producer in the writer's room of Grey's Anatomy. And so I sat in an office with Betsy and Shonda and and Tony Phelan and Joan Rader, who are my close, close friends. And I was very honest with them. I said, I would love to work on Grey's Anatomy, but I really loved these two or three episodes I did as James on Scandal. And if Scandal comes back, hadn't been picked up yet. If Scandal comes back, I would love, I don't want this job on Grey's to get in the way of me being on Scandal. And they said, we'll know where to find you. So I took a job two or three days a week in the writer's room of Grey's Anatomy. And that whole season, I was three days a week in Grey's Anatomy and a couple of days a week on Scandal. And it was a dream. I'm acknowledging it. I was fully in Shondaland. I was working on two different shows in two different capacities. But that character's story evolved over time. It was never, I never imagined it would go down the roads that it did. That's Ever. and that's it's it's so funny. We have such a different story into it, but but a similarity in that I had a history with Linda Lowy with this uh, Peter Berg show years before that I was supposed to test for. It was when I actually met her. It it didn't work out for whatever reason. They got rid of that character, um, and and then this came. You know, we had other interactions. I had gone in for Grays, never got it. Shonda always said he's not right. He's not right. And then this thing came. It, it's. It's just the relationships and the and the keeping at it and keeping at it. And I had no idea about your connection to Grays until literally like right before a couple of days ago when you sent me. I, I didn't know that you were a consulting producer on Grays Anatomy, and that's what's so fascinating to me about you is that you you've been doing all of this. It just makes me love you that you're. You've been, you, you willed this into existence. This is like, this is fortitude and will and, and, and talent, but it's like, you just, 
you were like, that. I can't rely on talent alone, even though I have it. And that's no. my philosophy is like, yes, you got to be talented. But on top of that, you got to be tenacious and relentless and lucky. Yes. And, you know, yes. but the yes. luck is created from this kind of like, think of the volume of your, I'm, I'm just looking at this. This this bio of yours and and the fact that you wrote a book and you get a movie it's it's astounding to me and I anybody who listens is probably like all right shut up man like I get so excited to sit down with people wow. and it's also so humbling I said to my wife this morning I'm like holy crap Dan Bukatinsky I mean this guy has done you've just you've done so much and and you've you've stayed true to that creative spark and I know you said earlier you know, well, I get tired now and I know what it's going to be. So I kind of like, I don't necessarily want to bite off more than I can chew. And I, I relate, but you still have that fire in you. And I fucking love that. Well, well, I appreciate you saying that. I mean, I, I, I appreciate it. And I, again, when you're looking at someone's life on paper, you are looking at the yeses. I love the title of this podcast because what you don't realize, you know, uh, for every one of those yeses, do you have any idea how many pilots I've written and not one of them, not one of them has become a television show? So I don't know whether you, that's not a success story. I mean, it is because I was hired to write these pilots. And as a result of that, I was able to be a dad. Like I look at my life differently now because so many of those no's were the thing that ultimately gave me the freedoms that I wanted Anyway, like I wanted to be around to raise my children. And had I been in a writer's room from 7 a.m. to 3 a.m. every single day, I would not have been able to do that. So careful what you wish for. Every time I would write a pilot, I was playing Russian roulette because had it gone, I could have been completely absent from my kids' lives for a decade. So, but I wrote I mean, I'm scared to tell you the number and I, I won't, but think of a number and then double it. And that's the number of pilots I've written. And not one of them has become a television show. I'm not trying to be self-deprecating. I'm trying to say that like, I'm not Greg Berlanti. I'm not Ryan Murphy. I'm not many people who have made, who've written more than one book and who have made more than one movie and who have yeah. made dozens of shows. So it's all, and again, I'm not trying to tarnish my own no, accomplishments. No. I am tenacious and I am constantly aspiring towards better, but there's always, and this is the other thing I'll say, and then I'll shut up. This business is so hard for exactly the personalities that go into this business. So the the people who are broken enough, what John Patrick Shanley used to call the unlicked cub, right? There was a play called Four Dogs and a Bone where he said there was a bear who gave birth to eight cubs, but only seven of the cubs got licked the afterbirth got licked by the mother. The last cub was the unlicked cub and that cub went into show business. <laughs> and, <clears throat> and it's very, very funny because those, those of us who are the unlicked cubs, who are most kind of feeding off the teat of attention and visibility and success and feeding our creative spirits are in the business that is so taunty, teasy, and withholding of that very lifeblood, right? So ironically, you know, we're in a business where there is always another room. I always talk about this. I spend so many years of my life trying to get invited inside of a room. And then one day I was allowed inside the room. 
And I was like, oh my God, this is so cool to be inside the room. I finally got invited into the room. But in the back of the room, there's a door. And you're like, hey, you tap on someone in the room with you. And you're like, what's that door? That's Meryl oh, Streep's room. <laughs> not quite. Not quite. You wish. I wish it was Meryl Streep's room. That door is great. That's Some people will get asked to go into that room. That's it's It's kind of a VIP room. Not quite, but it's pretty great. And then you're completely obsessed. There's no way you will look at yourself as a success unless you get invited into that room. And eventually, years later, through everything you try, you finally make your way through that door only to realize that there's one, two, three, an infinite number of doors inside of an infinite number of rooms, none of which make you feel like you finally have gotten there. And it is so true. It is so true. As as lucky as I've been and as fortunate I am, and I'm on this fabulous show called The Baker and the Beauty, which premieres on, on the 13th and will be on Mondays on ABC. There's the plug. But, oh, I'm going to get, yeah, I want to get to that because I want I do want to give that the proper due. Go on. There's always reasons. There's always something I can find. And this is a damage in my psyche. There's always something I can find that makes everything not quite as good as it could be. And it's really not the thing I would recommend to young people. If I were to tell any of them, I would say you really have to learn, A, not to put your future in the hands of a 10-year-old's dream. Like be willing to pivot your dream, follow your dream, but be willing to evolve and change it and pivot as time goes on and as you get older. Because if you're rigid to a 10-year-old's idea of what your dream is, you're almost destined to not achieve it. Uh, that's one. And two is you have. we all have to start learning to love what we have as opposed to you know, to be constantly looking for the next thing that's going to make us feel like, all right, well, now, now I can be happy because I dot, dot, dot. It's so beautifully put. And I have different metaphors that's kind of explain that same room, room theory that you have. Mine is pools from an ocean into a pool, into a puddle, yeah. into, you know, but yes, the, the takeaway as I listen to you, and I do want to spend, I know you, I want to let you go. I also do want to get into Baker and the Beauty because I want people to hear mm. this because you're, you're, you're giving such gold and I want to just give back to you in terms of letting people know where to find you right now. Um, but the, 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 the takeaway that I have is, because this is how I feel, and it's only in the last couple of years, it's really kind of this podcast has made me more aware of it than anything, uh, is all of those things that I complained about that I wasn't being allowed into for so long, those very things forced me to work on other muscles and work on these other things that I didn't necessarily get what I wanted the way that I thought I wanted it, but I got the skills of what I needed to where now I relate to you. A lot of the things that I'm doing now, they're mine. And I never would have done them if I didn't have to do them. I only developed them. The only reason this podcast exists, which I love, and it's led to a book and all that kind of stuff. The only reason it exists is because I couldn't get what I wanted. I was getting right. pummeled. And so, yes, but and, and, and so it forced me to bring out the thing that I actually needed. And now I have more, I have more like, 
that, that feeling you're saying of looking in the back, of the, you know, for the other door in the back of the room, I don't have it as much as I used to. I really don't. It's, I'm more comfortable. And, and I think as much as, I mean, you're very funny with the way you put it and you're always looking for that other thing. But as I look at you and, and, and listen to you, I feel like you're really in control of your destiny as much as one can be in this crazy, uncertain business. But you really, right. those skills that you developed as a producer, pitching things, you know, producing things, writing things, you're in control of your destiny. I want it. We're at 57 minutes. So I want to, I want to let you, okay. let's, let's just talk real quick about the Baker and the Beauty, ABC coming out. What, who do you play? Uh, what's the story and how did it come about? It, it, it's quite simple. It's an Israeli format. The show is called The Beauty and the Baker in Israel. And uh, it's like Notting Hill. It is a romantic comedy about the son of a, of a you know, in a Cuban American Miami family that runs a bakery. And he crosses, he crosses paths with this mega, mega celebrity superstar, you know, somebody of the caliber of JLo. And they're in begins a very unlikely romance. And um, it really is about the merging of these two families because that family is a very traditional, warm Latin family. And Noah Hamilton, his celebrity, has no relationship with her father or her mother and has this manager, or more like a momager, um, who is both father figure and business manager in her life. And I play, a mu much like Ari and Entourage, this ruthless, unedited, ambitious uh, business manager who also has her back emotionally. And slowly but surely over the course of the nine episodes that are this season, you learn exactly what makes Lewis, my character Lewis, tick. Um, but you also see how he's been hiding from his personal life by throwing himself into his client's life. And everyone has a story, including Lewis. Um, but it's, you know, for a time like now that we're all stuck at home, this show is a total fairy tale. It's hilariously funny. And so it's kind of genre bending in the way that I love genre bending shows. It's an hour long and it's a soap, but it's a family comedy at the same time time. So it's like one part ugly Betty and it's one part modern family. And it's got a little bit of entourage to boot and all of it wrapped up in a kind of Notting Hill, you know, Cuban sandwich. Um, <laughs> um, and so if we're doing nine episodes Monday nights after this bachelor spinoff and uh, I'm very proud of it. And it's really, it's just like a box of chocolates. It's like a fun comfort food that you can watch at home when you're in quarantine. It sounds like a fun character and a fun show. I actually know Victor, but I haven't seen him in years and years. So I'm, I like to see that. Georgina Riley yeah. as well. Um, Georgina and I act together almost the whole time because we are the only two people in the entourage of Noah Hamilton. So I got very, very close with Georgina Riley. I love her so, so much. And uh, she and I were... I called, I, we were like the Laverne and Shirley on that show a lot. Um, so uh, yeah, it really was a satisfying thing. I mean, we had to leave, we shot the whole thing in Puerto Rico. Um, the whole cast spoke, speaks Spanish. My family was from Argentina. So we were literally immersed in the Latin culture while we were shooting. So there's a lot of authenticity that comes into the show. 
That's great. Yeah. It's, it's, uh, it's so cool to hear also the familiar names because you and I talking about how we knew each other, we come back into each other's lives. Georgina and I did that pilot. Then we we're doing City on a Hill together. Her husband, Mark, was on this show. Jeff Perry. We have all yep. these. It gets smaller and smaller as the years go by. Um, I, I want to shout out to uh, your husband, Don. He should be on this show as I started looking at his body of work. I think that, yeah. that would be fun. And there's so many people. Um, I, Dan Bukatinsky, Cannot thank you enough. N- not only just for you, just in- inspired the hell out of me, um, and well, and you're I'm just glad. and you're so articulate that I feel like the listeners not only get entertained, but it's this is like a a symposium on on how to <laughs> handle this career. You just kind of gave us well, you hit on everything. I really really thank you. Uh, for, well, for and you, you can you come back me. whenever you want. I mean, I, we'll do like the, the Dan Bukatinsky lecture series. I think. <laughs> no, 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 no. Well, I love getting to see you. I hope we get to. I hope we're allowed to actually see each other in person sooner sooner than later. Likewise. Um, but thank you. It's such a pleasure to see you and talk to you. So uh, I'm a huge fan of this podcast. So congrats on it. Thank you very much, Dan. What we do here is go back, 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 back. Okay, top three takeaways. I am going to keep them brief. Number one, the sheer amount of hustle that you need to do if you are in some line of work where everybody wants to be where you are. As they say, if it were easy, everybody would be doing it. It takes a lot of work. We're in a business where there is always another room. I always talk about this. I spend so many years of my life trying to get invited inside of a room. Number two, I've been talking about this a lot during the quarantine. You can only control the things you can control and you got to let the other stuff go because you are not going to have control over everything. There are some things that just we have no control over and selling an idea is something you just can't control. It either will or it won't. It's one reason we called our company is or isn't entertainment because things that we are trying to cook up either will or won't. And number three relates to a solo episode that I did recently where I talked about how breakdowns and breakthroughs are two sides of the same coin. And I think this is exemplified in Dan talking about what happened to him in 2005, the pain that he went through, but then also the lessons that he learned. 2005 will go down in history. It was the year that my daughter was born. It was the year that my father was diagnosed with cancer. It was the year that I turned 40. It was the year that I, I mean, so many things converged that had to do with life and the business interwoven. All righty, folks, that is it for today. My thanks to Dan Bukatinsky. Want to let you know we've got another great actor coming here next week, Annabeth Gish. She is awesome. Uh, Again, we've got the Monday Morsels. If you want to be on the email list, email us at info at 10,000nos.com. That's 10000nos.com. People are talking about it. We're trying to give some some real value there with that. And also the Monday Morsels episodes, which are shorter. They are solo. They are me. Sometimes, as I did this week, ranting on a subject. I hope you enjoy those. Follow me on Instagram at Matty Dell. Please make note, at 10,000 knows is now the official Instagram feed of the show at 10000 NOS. 
That's the Instagram feed. Same on Twitter. So we're putting all the promo videos and all the news about it there. I've got a great new producer helping me out. I will uh, repost some of those things, but for the most part, that's where you go. Want to make that the home base. Thank you so much. Again, rate, review, subscribe, tell your friends. Have a great week. And we'll see you next week. First with Monday Morsels, next with Annabeth Gish. Annabeth Gish.